0: you're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This episode may not be suitable for all audiences. Topics of partner violence and traumatic brain injury will be discussed. If you or a loved one require further assistance, resources will be listed in our show notes. With that said, let's dive right in.
1: This podcast was recorded on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people.
0: To learn more about the land you are on, visit native land.ca. Hello and welcome to Women's Health Interrupted,
1: a Women's Health Research Cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. Welcome back to this week's
0: episode of Women's Health Interrupted. Today we will discuss the relationship between traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI, and intimate partner violence, and discover how it may uniquely affect the long-term health outcomes of women. Little is known about the effects of TBI on women's reproductive health, with respect to menstrual cycles, conception, and pregnancy. Joining us on today's episode to demystify this topic are two very exciting guests, Karen Mason and Dr. Paul Van Donkler. As co-founders of the SOAR project, known as Supporting Survivors of Abuse and Brain Injury Through Research, they will be sharing some insights about the experiences of women have suffered with traumatic brain injury through intimate partner violence. Karen brings with her 30-plus years of career experience to her work advocating for survivors of intimate partner violence, or IPV, people experiencing homelessness, and promoting a mentally healthy community. Dr. Paul Van Donkler is also a professor in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences and Associate Vice Principal of Research at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan Campus in Kelowna, B.C. A big welcome to the two of you for being here today on Women's Health Interrupted. So as experts in the field, uh, we were wondering if we could learn a bit more about intimate partner violence. What exactly is it?
2: So intimate partner violence is violence and abuse um, by a, a current or former intimate partner. So husband, boyfriend, Um, An abuse really is an incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive, threatening, and violent behavior against someone. There are a variety of terms for it. Uh, We use intimate partner violence, or IPV, but people will have heard of domestic abuse, family abuse, or family violence. There are a variety of terms.
0: I'm curious to know. So in terms of women who've experienced IPV... Um, What is the prevalence in Canada? So in our country, for example, what are the rates um, of IPV and uh, traumatic brain injury compared to those internationally?
2: So in terms of intimate partner violence, the kind of global statistic is that 30% of women will experience violence at the hands of a partner in her lifetime, either sexual violence or physical violence or some combination thereof. Um, We know, though, that those numbers are probably low because many women still don't report these incidents. Recently in Canada, new statistics came out that said 40% of women in Canada will report an incident of intimate partner violence in her lifetime. Again, those are reported incidents. So we know the numbers are actually higher. So those who work in the sector tend to say it could be as much as half of women who experience intimate partner violence. In terms of brain injury, the research that's been done so far, and there, there really hasn't been that much, um, suggests as many as 92% of women who've experienced intimate partner violence will also have experienced a brain injury. So, if you if you extrapolate the numbers, in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control said that 2.3% of women every year will experience a severe incident of intimate partner violence. So, if we take that to Canada. That's 230,000 women a year in Canada experiencing a severe incident of intimate partner violence. Apply the 92%, and that means more than 212,000 women in Canada every single year are probably experiencing a brain injury because of an incident with their partner. So the numbers are ridiculously high, and it's just
1: not something that we've really heard enough about until now. Absolutely, and in the research that is out there, we know that there are also additional health risks um, with traumatic brain injury. And so, could you tell us more about these, and also why are women more likely to be affected?
3: So, it's uh, so I'll take the last part of that question first. Uh, absolutely, men can experience intimate partner violence in a in a variety of different uh, relationships, both heterosexual and homosexual. Uh, the the difference though is that uh, with um, a male perpetrator and female uh, victim quite often the physical violence can be more extreme and and lead to be more likely to lead to injury including uh, brain injury whereas that's much less the case when it's a female on male a situation or male on male situation so uh, I think um, you know, bottom line, it yes, it affects everyone, um, and uh, it, the effects seem to be more extreme or more exaggerated when uh, the woman is the victim or the survivor. The other things that can go on in intimate partner violence that intersect with brain injury are kind of the emotional or psychological impacts of the experience, so things like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or anxiety, the way the person responds to what you know, uh, may appear to be or is, uh, feels like a hopeless uh, situation. Uh, They may uh, use or abuse substances to try and deal with the challenges that they're facing, and those have impacts on uh, the person's health overall as well as on their brain function. And so in our research, we try and account. First of all, we measure as many of those different things as we can by asking people uh, questions about uh, those different aspects of their experience and then taking them into account in the analysis that we do so that we're able to at least uh, infer that uh, a certain proportion of or a certain amount of what we're seeing and some of the things that we measure are due to how much or how frequently or how severe the actual brain injury was as opposed to these other comorbidities like PTSD and depression and anxiety.
2: The other piece it's important to consider in terms of um, uh women's health and this context is that once a woman has experienced a brain injury and intimate partner violence, she's at much higher risk of experiencing another brain injury because she now is dealing with some cognitive challenges and all the things that come along with having a brain injury. So it may be more difficult for her to get herself out of the relationship to create and follow a safety plan to take the steps necessary to get herself and her children out to safety. She may be displaying behaviors that seem Uh, difficult and oppositional to her partner when in fact they might be a direct result of the brain injury he's given her, that then further angers him and potentially makes the abuse worse, which could lead to yet another head injury. So it becomes a cyclical thing and it gets harder for a woman to get out and to become safe and not experience more injury.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think what SWORD's doing right now is using a multidisciplinary approach to really tackle this massive public health issue. So kudos to the two of you for doing such a fantastic job on that front. Um, So I'm a little bit curious about how this journey started. Where did the two of you meet? And can you tell us a bit more about how this project took place?
2: Sure. So six years ago, Mm
0: I have to get that right. Yeah. Six years
2: yeah. ago, Paul and I were both uh, slightly less middle-aged than we are now. <laughs> and and both single and looking for love online, as people <laughs> do. And uh, we both swiped right on Tinder, of all places. Um, because, you know, this is a podcast, you can't see him, but he's really cute. He's <laughs> tall. He's very smart. I have an excellent personality. Um, so we met on Tinder, and we fell in love pretty quickly. And at the time, I was the executive director of Kelowna Women's Shelter, which provides housing and support for women fleeing intimate partner violence. And Paul was, as he still is, a professor in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences. To that point, focusing pretty much 100% on sports concussion work. So a few months into us being a couple, I stumbled upon this article about the potential connection to brain injury with intimate partner violence. I had never seen this before in my years working in the gender-based violence sector. I knew there was no training about this that was happening generally in shelters. So I immediately forwarded the article to Paul and said, what the heck are you doing studying football players and soccer players? We need to get some money and we need to study women. This is a big deal. So Paul managed to find uh, some incredible anonymous grant donor funding for us and that's kind of how it all started and it unfolded from there because six years ago there was very little research on this topic
3: yeah yeah when karen sent me the article and said <laughs> start studying women and not to part of violence um you know as a scientist i first thing i did was went on online to uh PubMed, which is our, our bibliographic database uh, for everyone, that every study that's ever been published on anything related to um, how how the body works or doesn't work, and you know typed in the keywords intimate partner violence and brain injury, and I think a total of about five or six papers were came up, only two or three that were uh, specifically about um, measuring brain function in um, um, women who've experienced IPV-related brain injury. Um, And so, uh, you know, and I always like to say that, you know, if you you do the same search and just type in brain injury or concussion, you'll get 400 articles from the last week. (laughs) I might might be over exaggerating a little bit, but um, the the point is that there's a lot of research on brain injury outside of the context of intimate partner violence. If, on the converse, if you type in intimate partner violence, you'll also get a lot of articles. There, there's amazing research happening on intimate partner violence in general, both in terms of you know prevention as well as what can we do about it. Um, but very little on the intersection between the two.
2: Yeah, when we, when we first started doing this work, it really was like, okay, we need to find out how often this is happening and how it's affecting women. So we're like, okay, good. But then we went, well and me as someone who works in the nonprofit sector working directly with survivors said, well, okay, we know it's a lot, good, you go do your science and we'll get our statistics and we'll use that to help us get funding and change policy. But if we know this is a big problem, well, we have to educate people. So we have to educate frontline workers because they don't know. And they too, just like the former partner might think a woman who's staying with them or seeking help is in fact difficult, oppositional, forgetful, maybe not that smart. It's something that wasn't a lens they did their work through before. So we were like, okay, we need to also do educational work, create training programs and get the word out for those who are working with women. But then if we're going to do that, we said, hmm, we can't just say to a woman, hey, listen, I've learned all this stuff and I'm pretty sure you've had a brain injury. Bye, good luck. We thought we have to find some way to help them. So eventually what started out as, you know, we should look into this became this kind of three-pronged approach where the first phase we call educate, and that's the scientific research into the incidents and the impacts. And then the second phase is our educate. Did I say that right? The first one's explore the second one's educate, and that's the piece of creating training tools and workshops and getting the word out to survivors and frontline workers in all different sectors. And then the third one is empower. And that's where we are working directly in our community organizations and with the healthcare system to create better rehabilitative supports and programs that we can then help women get to that next place in their journey, because really that's what this is all about. We want to help women lead better
1: lives.
0: Incredible. This all started from Tinder.
1: (laughs) Who knew? You two are a match made in heaven. And I just thank you for such a thoughtful approach. I just can't believe it's too perfect to be.
2: (laughs) One thing we're doing right now, which is really exciting. Paul has a master's student who's been um, for his master's project, looking at the ethics of screening women for brain injury and intimate partner violence. Those who work in the gender-based violence sector will say, Yes, we want to know if there's something happening with a woman and we could help her. But in the world of gender-based violence and ex-spouses and going to court and child custody, things can often be weaponized against a woman. So there's been a lot of concern in the sector about will a diagnosis or even just a screen of brain injury then be used against a woman if she's in court or trying to get custody of her kids. That's a really, really important conversation that has a lot of depth and complexity to it. And um, if not for this master student who is working with Paul, we might not yet have been examining it, but it's it's a really important piece of the work that you wouldn't necessarily think of right away.
1: Absolutely. Um, Karen, I'm hoping you could talk a little bit more about the Empower piece and what are some strategies that SOAR is employing to increase Awareness among women, and also destigmatize conversations around the issue. It's a huge challenge because you know even even now, any
2: conversation even around intimate partner violence, there's still that stigma. Women often still don't feel comfortable or safe sharing their experiences or speaking their truth. We know that a woman is in fact at her at her most vulnerable at the time of leaving a partner or soon afterwards. That's when she's most likely to be badly hurt or killed. So there's still a lot of fear for women around leaving that that they're actually safer to stay. And when they do leave, the notion of sharing their experience could potentially put them at risk. So there's a lot of complexity wrapped up in this. We've been working very closely with women's shelters across BC and working with the national organization that represents women's shelters doing training sessions, reaching out so that those frontline workers understand how common this is so that they can learn the language and the way to speak to women about it and have the conversation about brain injury. I think that's the first step to getting women themselves more educated and empowered. We created a an online training um, module called the concussion awareness training tool online for women's support workers. And that's a 40 minute online course. And really anyone who works with women can take it and learn the basics of what they need on this topic. But we have heard anecdotally that one of one of the women who had heard about brain injury and intimate partner violence and had raised it with her doctor because she had been dealing with this. The doctor brushed her off. She went back took the concussion awareness training tool online, then went back to her doctor and advocated for herself because she was able to gain the knowledge she needed to say, you know what? I know this happened to me and you need to help me. So that to me is the really great example of that empowerment piece happening right in front of our eyes. It's just one woman, but it's a start. Um, and the other piece is, is providing the services and support so that women can deal with these chronic issues that are causing trouble in their lives, like forgetfulness and management and, um, you know, mood stabilization, uh, cognitive function. So uh, Paul can tell you more about what we're calling the Community Support Network, which is a, a rehabilitation program that we've just launched in a really small pilot cohort.
3: Yeah, so it's uh, in collaboration with another uh, community partner, Brain Trust Canada, who are actually implementing the program. Um, Program involves a number of different components. So there's absolutely a neurocognitive piece, because I think it's a very common complaint amongst folks with uh, chronic brain injury symptoms that just staying on task and staying on top of all the different you know, balls that we have typically have in the air uh, as we go through life is, is a big challenge. And so that's one main component. Another is uh, like physical activity and exercise, which is, you know, good for everything, um, uh, including for recovering from brain injury. Then there's a, a mindfulness and meditation piece, uh, which is also, uh, you know, been shown to be effective um, across a wide variety of uh, of illnesses and injuries, including brain injury, and then kind of a, a counseling, uh, uh, kind of personal support component, where um, where a person will get feedback and be able to think through with guidance around how they're feeling and how they're responding to this intervention.
2: I one of we have um, a small handful of participants that are doing this pilot cohort for us, and one of them, her story is um, it's. Tragic and entirely too common. Her most recent incident of violence was this past December, during which she was um, knocked unconscious several times, was kicked in the head multiple times, her hair was set on fire, beer was poured on her head. She doesn't remember a lot of the evening, it went over several hours. Since then, she's been going through the court system and trying to stay safe and um, recently got a new job and within two weeks was fired from that job because she just couldn't do all the things she actually does know how to do. She had never heard of the idea that perhaps she might have suffered a brain injury and that could be why she was dealing with all these challenges And when the RCMP officer who was working with her, who knew about the project, and we've been working with her on training, raised this with her, she was incredibly surprised and relieved to find out that maybe this wasn't her fault, that there actually was something wrong with her that was her partner's fault because he attacked her, and that she wasn't stupid and that she hadn't just lost all her skill. She'd be driving somewhere and forget where she was going, and she thought she was going crazy. But now she understands that these are all really normal reactions to have experienced a pretty severe brain trauma. And she's participating in our program and is so hopeful about what this program might mean for her. And we don't know yet if it's going to work. I sure hope it is. But to me, she's exactly why we're doing this work. Her, her story captures exactly why this is important. And she's just one example of women who are walking around having experienced this, but having no idea they might've had a concussion and no idea that in fact, it's not their fault and there's nothing wrong with them.
0: And in terms of like our healthcare system, how do you think it could better help to support these women?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And something that we've struggled with uh, in in this project is how to, how to lower the barriers to uh, the response of the healthcare system. So, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma associated with intimate partner violence, better, probably better than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I think it's more out in the open now, um, especially with the Me Too movement, for example, where we talk about these things uh, uh, more openly than we used to. Um, and so that stigmatization quite often can play out in, in uh, the supports people may seek from healthcare. care. Um, kind of the classic question that might get asked is, well, why don't you just leave? Um, and, and there's all sorts of reasons, including associated with the stigma as to why leaving might not be the best option, including from a person's health, uh, and, and their well Um, and so I think there's a long ways to go in terms of how the healthcare system can best provide support. I think, you know, in response to that, uh, uh community-based supports, uh, kind of have filled, have filled that gap in many ways. It's, it's still you know, very likely fall short um, in terms of the amount of support and the, and the duration of that support. So one of the things that we're uh, working on as part of the SOAR project is to partner with our local health care authority, Interior Health, to find and better understand, um, you know, what supports they could provide, what the barriers are to those supports, and then how we might um, break down those barriers so that uh, it becomes more feasible to make use of the amazing, uh, you know, expertise that, that uh, healthcare can provide.
2: One of the, one of the big issues, is the lack of education overall, this is not um, a topic that has been commonly spoken of, and there are not a huge range of educational opportunities. It's not something that's taught in every med school. And, you know, in every nursing school, it's, this is still such a new intersection. And until we can ensure that, every doctor, every nurse, every paramedic, every police officer, every lawyer, every judge, every fill in the blank, understands what a common intersection this is, how prevalent it is, and has the knowledge and training to support a woman who's experienced that very complex situation and understands trauma-informed practice, I don't think we'll be able to create the right set of circumstances where all the supports and that safety net will be available. I don't certainly don't think there's a lack of desire to learn about this and, and provide the service. I just think the knowledge isn't there. We've worked with participants who spoke of going to the hospital after an intimate partner violence episode, speaking about how they'd been thrown out of a moving car, and treated as if they were drunk and asked if they were high because they were displaying the effects of a brain injury and were highly traumatized and in crisis. And that left the, the woman so upset that she didn't seek medical care the next time she had an incident. So I know that's not happening commonly, but that sort of thing is definitely a barrier for women seeking support and that fear of exposing that they are living with this situation, that the partner who may have brought them to the hospital is, in fact, the person who's attacking them. There's there's so much uh, wrapped up in this that it's a really complex issue.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I also feel like with quarantine and COVID, um... Do you think those numbers and those those stories are really just spiking now because women are being confined in their house?
2: Absolutely. You know, be, you think about all these people during COVID talked about how just stay safe at home, but so many women were not safe at home because home was the least safe place for them and for their children of course, and their children weren't even able to be safe and go to school. So, I think we've seen we've seen around the world You know, reports of and severity reports of intimate partner violence really skyrocketing through COVID and the isolation. I'd like to think that because there's been such widespread reporting of it and a lot of research being done that we will see um, a connected increase in resources and new ideas and ways of helping women, which in the end will be a good thing. But I certainly won't be surprised if when we resume in-person research, which we have not been able to do since COVID, that we will find in asking women to think back retrospectively over the past year, I'm sure we'll find that we get reports of more severe incidents of violence um, and things happening more than they might have previously. Mm -hmm. The other piece we've been hearing more about is um, strangulation which we know happens in 50, at least 50% of intimate partner violence. And it is the biggest red flag for future mortality because it's so highly lethal and it's the ultimate display of control by an abuser. Um, And we've, we've heard a lot about increased reports of strangulation as part of the intimate partner violence experience during COVID as well. So it's, it's definitely not good news at the same time. I think it just highlights the need for this research and this work even more.
1: Absolutely. And we want to wish you much success on this research project. And, um, and also, I, we will link to the um, resource tool that you shared online. Um, we want to thank you so much for the work that you do on all different levels of education and advocacy and science and research. And, and, and just, just thank you so much. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Yeah, thank
3: you. Appreciate it.
1: episode got a few new synapses firing for you. Be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second Wednesday each month.
0: Get in touch with us. We welcome any questions and constructive feedback. You can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on Twitter at research on wh. or on Instagram at whrcluster. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project.
1: We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast.
0: And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening, wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.